Welcome to the Thrive Vineyard Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Kevin Kiefer. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit thrivevineyard.com. Good to see you. Uh, for those of you that are here for the first time, welcome. Really uh, honored that you would come and spend time with us. Um, all right. Well, Molly's family, uh, I don't, I hope this is okay to say, Molly's family is super well off. They, <laughs> they are. They're like really, really well off. Um, her dad was a super high powered lawyer, a corporate lawyer at Allstate, and he was really, really good at his job. And they paid him really, really well. And so um, Molly and I have been married for 25 years. And for 25 years, of course, I've been a part of the family. Molly's been a part of the family for her whole life. And we have been uh, richly blessed by um, being a part of Molly's family. They have been supportive and encouraging and loving to us um, really almost always, but they're also very, very generous with us. They're really, really generous. And I wasn't actually used to this when we got married. When I, the, you know, the family that I came from, uh, was all boys and we didn't have a lot of money. And so we kind of had to make our own way. And so, um, I joined the army so that I could pay for college. I drove, when Molly and I met, I was driving a rusted out Ford Taurus station wagon because that was the only car that I could afford. Definitely the least cool car any 23-year-old could ever drive, right? But that's the car that I had. Uh, I was just kind of used to making my own way. But when I married into the family, when we would go out for dinner, every single time, um, Molly's parents would pick up the check. And I just wasn't like... I wasn't really used to that at first. And so, and I would always say, Hey, can, can we, you know, can we get the check? And even if it wasn't like me pay for them, like, could I get the check for Molly and I, or could we get the check for our kids? And they would just not hear of it at all. They would always, always, uh, treat us. Right. And, um, and, and, and so sometimes very, very rarely, um, I would, or Molly would say, you know what, we are definitely getting the check this time. And so we would, you know, fight that battle with them and say, no, just this once, we want to get the check. And we would say it so forcefully that they would know that we meant business and they would allow us to buy dinner for them and for us. And they would make like a really big deal of it and say, thank you guys. That was so kind of you. That means a lot to us. Um, and that was sort of our way of just expressing our gratitude and our thankfulness and, and that type of a thing. Um, but I promise you that at no point when Molly and I picked up the check with her mom and dad, did we ever help them out financially, right? At no point did that, did we ever say, we're getting the check and they're like, Oh my goodness, thank you. Because I just got on my, my app and it turns out that the, the, you know, the bank account is a little low. No. Um, we would do it and they were really, really grateful to us, but it was always just a symbolic thing, right? We were never getting them out of any kind of a jam, but we just wanted to do that every once in a while, right? And they, I love how they would always make a big deal of it. And I, I actually think you guys that us buying dinner for Molly's mom and dad as a little bit like us trying to bless God, Okay. And the question I want to ask is, is can we actually bless God? Can we actually bless him? And, um, 
I don't know why I thought about that this, this week, but I kind of asked the question. I did a little bit of research, and pastor and theologian um, John Piper, he says this about the question, can we bless God? He said, my thesis is that in Scripture, when God blesses men, they are thereby helped and strengthened and made better off than they were before. But when men bless God, he is not helped or strengthened or made better off. Rather, man's blessing God is an expression of praising thankfulness. The way that we bless God is an expression of our praise and thankfulness to God. And so I'll give you a couple of scriptures where we find, uh, the, you know, the, a situation where we are called to bless God. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 10 says this, And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. You see that there in Psalm 103 verse 2, David writes this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, right? And so when we bless God, we're essentially saying, God, I see you. I recognize you. You are amazing to me. Thank you, God, for being you. Thank you for your generosity to us. At which point, God never actually says, oh, shucks, really? Oh, man, thanks for filling my cup. I was, I was honestly feeling a little bit insecure, uh, you know, and your encouragement of me has given me the confidence that I need to get back out there and be the God of the universe, <laughs> right? He does not say that uh, at all. He probably is more akin to, I, I, sometimes when I daydream about this, I think of us trying to bless God. Uh, he might see it in the same way that like parents see their four-year-olds when the four-year-old tries to cook dinner for them or to clean the house. I don't know if we have an image here. Here we go, right? I love the one on the right. Apparently somebody was getting fed peanut butter there, right? And sometimes I think maybe this is the way that our expressions of blessing God, it's the, sort of the way that he hits him. It's like very cute to him. He loves it, uh, but we're not actually helping him, right? And so I don't know if it's true that we can actually bless God, if we can actually add to his life or not. But then I was thinking, maybe there's, maybe there's one thing. Maybe there's one thing that we could do that would actually just make God's heart come alive. Maybe there was one thing that we could possibly do as human beings that would actually make God jump for joy that would completely wreck him and cause him to go, oh man, I'm so thankful, so thankful for you. And so if you want to be a person that wants to be able to truly, truly make God's heart dance, listen to this. Luke chapter 15, the tax collectors, it says tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus preach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them, which was an act of great intimacy. So Jesus, sorry, I know I'm rubbing here a little bit. So Jesus told them this story. If a man had a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, listen, when he has found it, I need to wear a different shirt. When he has found it, 
Um, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he'll call together all his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. And in the same way, there is more joy, say that, joy. There's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Church, you guys, I, I believe that there is nothing in scripture and there is not a thing that a Christian can do in all of our lives that compares to the impact that happens when we bring one of God's lost children back to him. There is a rejoicing in heaven. There is a rejoicing in the, fa- the heart of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit when one of his children get found and it's greater than any other thing that we could possibly do. Jesus describes this as joyful rejoicing with joy. Do you see that in, the, in, the, in the, those words in this little scripture? Joyful rejoicing with joy. I don't know, have, have you ever joyfully rejoiced with joy? I, I'm not sure that I have. I have, I've gotten stoked a couple of times. I've been really pumped up. I, I've been happy before. I'm not sure if I've ever joyfully rejoiced with joy. But that's what God does. That's what God does every time one of his lost sheep are found. And Jesus goes on. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and her neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, Jesus says, There is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one, even one, when even one sinner repents. Luke 15, you guys, has been described as the gospel within the gospel because it's this incredibly beautiful picture of the heart of God. It reveals the true heart of God, and it's this wonderful uh, description. And this description actually came about because, um, because Jesus was was spending time with the wrong people. And that was his custom. He would hang out and he would fellowship and he would enjoy himself with the outsiders, with people that didn't come to church, with people that didn't really get God. And the gospel writers, uh, they report that this was sort of his regular practice. It's just how he did in his life. It was just the way that Jesus kind of rolled. It was his custom. Um, and it wasn't even that like Jesus pastored a church that welcomed in outsiders. It was just that he just loved being with them. He loved fellowshipping with them. And the problem was, is that the churchy people, the religious people, they didn't celebrate this. They didn't say, Jesus, that is so awesome that you do that. As a matter of fact, they had a completely different way of thinking about it. They actually criticized him for being with these unbelieving people. But I have to say that the Pharisees, they came by their thinking honestly, right? This wasn't just like sort of happenstance for them. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, they actually had a term for people that didn't keep the law, people that didn't keep the, even the letter of the law. And the term that they had for those people was people of the land. They called them the people of the land. Um, and the whole thing about dealing with the people of the land is that they were cut off. They were cut off completely. And so here are the Pharisaic regulations for the people of the land. The Pharisees said this, when a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him. Take no testimony 
from him. Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him guardian of an, off, of an orphan. Do not uh, make him the custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. And the Pharisees were actually forbidden to be the guest of any such person or to have one of those people of the land as their own as their own guest. They weren't allowed to do business with them, nothing. In other words, if you wanted to be a good follower of God, you had to cut the people of the land off completely. And according to, um, to Bible scholars, and I, I read this from one of, uh, one of the commentaries that, that I, uh, read, they actually all, you know, most Pharisees, most religious people, they actually believed this and they actually had a saying about it. Um, and it's actually quite moving, actually. Their saying was this, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated by God. It's, it gets you, doesn't it? Are you with me here? <laughs> You tracking? Okay. That's what they would say. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated by God. And to put it into our terms, what it meant to be a good Christian is that we would separate ourselves from the people of the land, separate ourselves from people that don't follow Jesus. And so it was in this context that Jesus began to, to teach these Pharisees to tell this little series of stories about what the true heart of God is, what he really values what he really cares about. And so he told these stories to provoke them and to clarify God's heart and to call them to a new way of thinking and a new way of doing. And so for a couple of minutes, I want to talk to you guys about searching and about value. I want to talk about searching and value. And so Jesus first uses a very familiar analogy to them back in the day, not so much to us, but he talked about sheep and a shepherd, right? And he describes the incredible value that a single sheep has to a shepherd. And so he says in verse four, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one until he finds it? And so when, when Jesus describes this, everybody kind of knew what he was talking about. Shepherds were all over the place and it wasn't at all uncommon for a sheep to go astray. It wasn't uncommon for a sheep to wander away from the flock. Apparently they're dumb. Um, and, but, but whenever this happened, it was an incredibly big deal to the shepherd. It, a sheep leaving the flock was of the utmost importance to the shepherd and shepherds, it turns out, were actually expert trackers. They were amazing at going and searching searching and looking for and finding their lost sheep. And they would, shepherds would literally risk their lives so that they could bring home this lost sheep. As a matter of fact, uh, if a shepherd lost a sheep, they would take as much time as it took to go and retrieve that sheep. And they would have to find the sheep, even if it died, if the sheep was dead out there, if it was killed by wolves or something, the shepherd would still bring at least the fleece back so that he could show the owner that the sheep had actually been killed. So shepherds risked life and limb to go and to find just the single lost sheep. Now, there were probably some, uh, some, uh, Pharisees and some religious people could, that could get on board with the idea that if a sinner came crawling back to God on their face, if they were truly repentant, if they were truly sorry, if they were kind of beating their breast with, you know, guilt and shame about what they'd done, some people had a sense that God might receive them back, that, okay, maybe God could do that. But, 
excuse me, the one thing that shocked everybody and Jew, Jewish scholars would say that the one new thing that Jesus taught about God, the one thing that shocked everybody was the idea that God would ever chase after us, that he would ever go looking for us. And the question is, is why does God search for us? Why would he search for us? Well, I am a golfer. For those of you that don't know that, I'm a golfer. And in my golf bag, I have probably no less than 20 golf balls at any given time, right? And since I'm not a pro yet, uh, occasionally, just, just occasionally, once in a while, I'll hit an errant shot that won't be right in the middle of the fairway. Instead, my shot will be in the trees somewhere, uh, in the tall grass. If there's water, it could be in the water, right? But if it's not in the water, what will happen is this. I'll hit it somewhere, and I'll go and I'll look for my ball, and I'll be searching around for it. And oftentimes, it's not unusual for other guys that I'm with to come and help me look for my golf ball, right? And we'll look for a minute or two. And then usually I'll just say, guys, thanks for looking. And I'll just say, I'm just going to drop another ball. I go into my bag and I drop another ball and I let that lost ball go. And the reason why I don't sweat losing a golf ball is because they're not precious to me. They're not precious. They're not very valuable to me. But every so often, I'll be playing with a $3 golf ball. Now, $3 golf balls are a different deal, right? And I hate losing a $3 golf ball. And so if I hit one of those things somewhere, I will look and look and look. I'll scrape leaves away. I'll get under bushes. I'll make the group that's behind us wait to, to you know, to, there's my ball right there. Um, like, I will do anything to find that $3 golf ball. And the reason is, is because it has value to me, $3 to be precise, right? I'll dig around and I actually get really bothered when I lose one of those things. The question for I, that I have for you guys is this. If I feel that way about a golf ball, which I do, what happens if something is lost that is of far, far more valuable that value? What do we do when we lose something that is of immense value? A couple of weeks ago, Molly and I were in Florida for uh, this big conference and all of the leaders, the leadership of the vineyard was there and the national director uh, of the vineyard, his name is Jay Pathak. He was there and he was speaking and he shared an analogy about searching and about value. And I'm just going to share what he shared with us because I thought it was a really good analogy. And he was talking about, he has two daughters and he was just sort of imagining, he said, you guys, what if when our daughters were, were really, really young, he said, just imagine if, he said, they would go camping with friends. And can, if you could just imagine um, a whole bunch of, you know, families together uh, camping and it's, you know, late at night and they're around the fire and they're, they're uh, doing s'mores around the fire and everybody's having a great time. But if you could imagine, he said, that one of my daughters, like just, we discovered that my daughter was gone. We, we, we realized she wasn't with the camp. And it was dark out and she was gone somewhere in the wilderness. He said, the first thing that my wife and I would do would, would be to say, we, we got to go find our daughters. And hey, all you adults, would you please join us in looking for our daughter? And so they would run into the dark wilderness looking for their kid, right? Because of the value that they have. And let's say he said that, that after a few minutes, we come running back to the camp just to see if anybody had found her. And when they came back to the camp, 
they found that there were a couple of adults sitting around the fire. And he said, what are you, what are you guys doing? And they said, well, well, before we became a, a search and rescue team, we thought that it would be important for us to bond together. We thought that would be important for us to get to know one another. So we're going to spend a little bit of time before we get out there. We just want to, you know, kind of huddle up and get to know each other's stories and things like that before we go. And then he, he, he looks and he sees a few more adults over by the fire and they've got guitars. And he said, what are you guys doing? And he said, well, we thought it would be really cool to write and sing a few songs about lostness. And then he, he looked, and there was a few other uh, people there, and they were huddled together. And he said, what are you guys doing? Why aren't you out looking? And they said, well, we wanted to form a group together to discuss lostness and to talk about strategies for finding people and look at the historical context for people that are lost. Do you know what his response would be to those people? What would your response be if it was one of your kids? Like, what would you say to them? Like, after the explicatives, Right. It would be, get out there and find my lost daughter. Everything stops until my daughter is found. That is the heart of God. Why? Because of value, church. Because there is nothing more valuable in the whole world than a lost son or daughter. It's more valuable than a a pricey golf ball. That lost son or daughter is more valuable than a, a, a coin or a sheep. And God, church, is running. He is running. The spirit is running. Jesus is running, looking for the one who is lost. They're frantically looking to bring home their lost child. And they're asking, God is asking, will you go and search with me? Because my child has the, the, uh, um, the utmost value to me. And he's calling the adults in the room to go looking with him. And I want to ask you, Do you carry God's heart in this? Is your heart like God's? Are you an urgent looker? Are you the shepherd that is leaving the sheep to go and find the one that is lost? Are you like the woman that is turning her house upside down in the middle of the night so that you can find that lost coin? Or are you like the Pharisee who can live very peacefully while The daughters and the sons of God are lost and dying. Which one are you guys like? I know it's a hard question, but I'm not going to soften it. Will you be found at the campfire discussing lostness or singing a song about it? Or will you join the search party and urgently search for the lost one, even if you get yourself cut up by the branches, even if you get your clothes dirty, even if you fall down, will you join the search so that you can bring home one of his precious kids to him again? When a thing is valuable to us, we search for it. And if it isn't valuable to us, searching is optional. You hear me on that? I'm going to give you one more way of thinking about this. My brother-in-law, Evans, um, we, he and I, we have a really, really close relationship. And I, would, I wish that he was here today. I would love nothing more than to just roast him in front of you guys because that's kind of what our relationship is built on, is giving each other a hard time, preferably in public, right? So that's what we do. Um, and you, what you might not know is that Evans is an internal medicine doctor, right? And so every time I have any kind of a sickness at all, and I go to Evans and I say, hey, can you diagnose this thing for me? He always says it's a venereal disease. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, that's all it is. I'm like, but it's my elbow. No, it's a venereal disease, right? 
<laughs> so that's, that's kind of how we roll. But over the 20 years that I've gotten to be a close friend to Evans, there have been just a couple of times, a handful of times, where um, we will be in a place where suddenly somebody in the room will say, is there a doctor in the house? And in that moment, instantaneously, goofball Evans goes from goofball Evans to Dr. Sirwa, internal medicine doctor. And I have gotten to see him step into a moment and perform amazingly care for a sick person. And it is a cool thing to see. And almost any time that I've ever seen him do that, I thought to myself, I wish that I was a doctor because I would do that. I don't know if you guys would, but if I were a doctor and somebody was in need of help, I would step in right then and there and do my doctoring thing. And I want to tell you, church, that you are the doctor. You are the doctor. Matthew chapter 9. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat and hang out with and enjoy spending time with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go, now listen, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You are the doctor now. Are you with the sick people in your life? Are you being a good doctor? Are you using what you have, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, revelation about who God is, the scripture? Are you using what you have to make sick people well? You are the shepherd now. Are you regularly leaving the flock to go find the lost sheep? Is that what you do? Are you willing to carry the burden of people's lostness on your own back as you bring them back to the Lord at cost to you to bring them to the chief shepherd, to the father God that we all are, are, you know, are all kids of Jesus told these church people, go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice and mercy is rescuing the ones that are lost and in need of mercy. That's what mercy is. And sacrifice are the offerings that we bring here at church. And the Pharisees were great at sacrifice and they were terrible at mercy. And Jesus said, I want you to go and learn how to show mercy. And I want to challenge us. The Pharisees were campfire Christians. The lost daughter had little to value, little value to them. And so they did not get up and look. They didn't search. I'm going to wrap up by saying this. I began by just positing, questioning, could we possibly actually bless God? And I actually think that I was wrong. I think that we can bless God. I think we can just touch God's heart so powerfully, so amazingly. And if you ever wanted to be a person that would see God undone, if you ever wanted to overwhelm God and cause him to just thank, thank you for being who you are and doing what you're doing, then leave the campfire. Leave the campfire and go find his lost kids. Don't believe the lie, the golf ball lie that you could just, that he could just get another one. It's not true any more than it would be true as if we could just exchange one of our loved ones for another. Each one of them is utterly precious. They have no price tag. 
No price, take it all. And so I believe, church, that Jesus is saying to each of you, to each of you, I want to, if I could just look each of you in the eye and say this to you, I believe that God is saying, go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. I don't expect you to get it all today. I don't expect you to get it all right now. But go and learn what this means. And you be the one to make God's heart rejoice. Amen? Um, as you know, we, we always take just a little bit of time at the end of our service to um, just allow God to speak to us, to minister to us. I can, you know preach my little heart out to you guys, but unless God does something, it just won't go very far. So um, if you would join me, why don't we just take a few minutes to allow God to speak personally to us about this. This topic for me is uh, a passion. I believe it's a far greater passion to God. And so, uh, Holy Spirit, we just welcome your voice in our hearts for each one of us personally. We're all in a different place. We all have a different history. We all have different personalities. But you know us so intimately. You know who we are, how we work. But the, the call is the same for every one of us. And so, Spirit, would you just bring conviction where we need to be convicted? Would you cast vision for us where vision is needed? I love how in, in all of these scriptures, it's just about the one, just one. We don't have to save the nation. We don't have to save Chicagoland. Your assignment is one. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just put the one on our heart right now. Who is our one right now? Would you give us just a hunger, an ache? Would you just increase the value of the one in our lives? Would, would their value, their stock just rise and rise and rise in us until we just can't get past the, the, the call, the need to bring them back to the Father. Lord, none of us are very good at searching. None of us are expert trackers. But would you teach us your ways? Holy Spirit, would you teach us how to seek and find? Lord, let our lives make a difference. Let us be the one that causes you to rejoice. And if you're a person that is kind of far from God, if you don't know him well, God's heart is so after your heart. He just loves you so much. He's chasing after you. Every one of us is in this room because God chased after us. He loves you that much. Lord, I, I, I pray that, I, I don't know how many people are in this room 80, 90, 100, but I pray that walking out of this place would be a deploying, a sending out. 
for every one of us. And then we would bring back the one. 